Here's how I want to start. If you look at the graphic that's up there, by the way, that graphic was designed by Jess Smith, who is a member of our church, who does all of our graphics. She does a wonderful, wonderful job. Um, this graphic I want to refer to because we've, we've divided, uh, and when I say we, I mean Sam. Um, he does all the heavy lifting when it comes to, to preaching duty and all of that, and scheduling and uh, outlining and all those things. And so the outline we're using, other than the first introduction of the book of Acts, we started to get into this idea of, the, of building the fire in the church of Jerusalem. And that's chapter 2 through chapter 7, right, where we see and we concentrate on the church in Jerusalem. It's that building fire. And then the section that we're in now is the spreading fire beyond Jerusalem. So that's chapter 8 through the end of chapter 12. We have one more sermon after today in this section. It won't be next week, but it will be the week after. We will have a guest preacher next Sunday, Evan Skelton, uh, who I hope you guys will come and listen to. Evan is a, a wonderful preacher, a good church, um, Bayless Baptist Church in South County. Um, but it's, uh, the reason I wanted you to look at the graphic, first of all, is because it just makes my heart sing because it's symmetrical, and I love symmetry. So if you like that kind of stuff, you'll love this, this artwork. Um, but in the very center of that, you see what, what is a, a flame, right? Which indicates the Holy Spirit. We know this is the Acts of the Apostles. Your, most of your Bibles, if not all of them, will either say Acts or Acts of the Apostles. We know it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, we know what that means when it says Acts of the... But that, that fire indicates the Holy Spirit, and you can just see it spreading out. You see the map there, spreading out across the globe. The third section that we will be in beginning after two weeks will be a wildfire where we see the gospel and the mission to Cyprus and southern Galatia and beyond. And this is the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is, a, is a very um, it's a hard concept, right, to, to, to wrap our minds around. It often works in, in mysterious ways. The Holy Spirit is mysterious. The Holy Spirit um, um, is like the wind, right? We, we know these things. But the Holy Spirit also works in form and structure. Again, this makes my heart sing. As the book of Acts forges forward, and as you read your New Testament, we see more and more structure and purpose to how God moves and advances His kingdom. We, we hold intention um, the mystery of salvation, right? the work of the Holy Spirit, and the fact that God has a plan. Right? And those things can coexist. There is a plan. God has a plan, and that plan has structure, and that structure is the church. And the Holy Spirit works through the church. Ephesians 3 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And we know that Jesus Christ is the power and the wisdom of of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Mission is rooted in the, in, in the identity of God Himself. God is on mission, and Jesus is the embodiment of that mission. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Ed Stetzer, who's a missiologist, says this. He says, The church is sent on mission by Jesus. And it's not that the church has a mission, but rather the mission has a church. And we join Jesus on his mission. One commentator said that the church brings God's wisdom to expression. I love that. The church brings God's wisdom to expression. And we know that the, this wisdom is his eternal purpose in Christ, which is clearly none other than God's intent to unify all things in Christ. And we see that in the book of Acts. We've seen it already and we'll continue to see it. We will certainly see that today. God is unifying all things in Christ. And God uses his church to accomplish this. It's, it's an incredible thing that we are invited into this. This grand adventure. That, that God uses us to express His manifold wisdom in the world as His people. And so we see the church take form and structure in a lot more detail on into the New Testament in the writings of Paul specifically. We see a lot of detail there, but we see glimpses of it here in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 2 and beyond, we saw the church in Jerusalem, and today we're going to see it in the church 
in Antioch. And here, I think, is a helpful way to think about it if you need an analogy. I love analogies. I'm not good at analogies, so this may fall flat, but I think it's fun. So I'm going to use it anyway. Think of the church as a painting. I'm not an artist either, so I don't know that this is really going to work. But here we go. As the New Testament paints paints a portrait of the church, um, I like to think of the church, the church in, in Jerusalem in this case, and in Antioch, these two pillars, these two churches that we, that we learn of in Acts, as the foundational base colors of the church, of the painting of the church. And other New Testament writings that Paul gets into more minutia and detail as the fine brushstrokes. Does that make sense? Some of you guys remember Sean O'Coyle. He used to go to our church years ago. He, was help, he helped plant mid-cities. Sean was an artist, and Sean specialized in abstract art. And there used to be a painting um, hanging at mid-cities. And I asked Sean one day, I'm not particularly fond of abstract art. I love Sean, so I talked to him. I'm like, Could you tell me about this. What is it? What do you see? Well, he, he started out by telling me that he had layers upon layers upon layers on the canvas before he even started with what he thought and what he, what he saw. It's several layers of color that he was putting down just to get that base substrate layer to where he wanted it. And then he began to paint. My hope today is that we see one very specific foundational aspect of color, if you will, of the church that allows these finer brushstrokes that we see in the New Testament all make sense. Because you can look at some of the writings of the New Testament, and I don't have to name any, you know what they are, that you read them and you're like, that makes no sense. I don't get that. Submission? What? Brotherly love? What? Bearing burdens? A lot of that stuff just doesn't make sense without what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to read our text. Again, chapter 11, 19 through verse 30, and then uh, I will pray for our time and we will begin. Beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when they came and saw the grace of God, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, a prophet came down from Jerusalem. Excuse me, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the day of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And this is the word of the Lord. Church, pray with me. Father, we come into your presence this evening, with thanksgiving, Lord, we have made joyful noises to you. Songs of praise, Lord, for you are a great God. You are our King above all gods. And we are the people of your pasture, Lord, the sheep of your hand. Lord, our prayer, my prayer for me and for our church today, and anyone who hears this message is that, that we would hear your voice and that we would not harden our hearts but that they would be soft and pliable to hear and apply and live out the Word of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was supposed to start a timer and I didn't, so... Oops. That's all right. There's a lot of movement to the passage I just read. 
right? A lot of activity, lots of people, lots of places, uh, just as Jesus said there would be in Acts 1.8 when he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Bruce has a slide for us. It's slide one. Bruce, if you would put that up. There you go. That's where we're at. So you see the region of Judea, the region of Samaria. There's Jerusalem where the first church was. That's where all this stuff happened. It began to spread. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This movement is from the fire that is the Holy Spirit. Now you may say, Craig, this movement was from persecution. Because in chapter 8, it talks about this great persecution. And you would be right. But the persecution was due to what the Holy Spirit was producing in these new believers. And I believe that this persecution was also the cause of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that was igniting the hearts of the persecutors as well. And rather than facing the truth of what the Holy Spirit was doing in their hearts, they justified, they hid, they ignored their guilt and their shame that was produced by their sin in their hearts, and they lashed out in horrible ways to the church. Now, certainly not all of them this applied to. Some of them were just evil actors because Satan is against his church. But we know that there are some who were saved. And so I think there was a great deal of tension among the persecutors and the Holy Spirit was doing something in them and they responded poorly. And we read in chapter 8, verse 1, there was this great persecution and the people began to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Again, just as Jesus said they would, but we also know from our text that we read today, they continued farther on to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Bruce, you can go ahead and put slide two up. When Jesus said in Acts 1 that you will be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the scattered, what we're reading now, what we're reading today, what we're preaching on today is the scattered are now beginning to open doors to the end of the earth. So you see our reference point down in Jerusalem. We're moving up. We're moving north up into Phoenicia, which is along the Mediterranean coastline, up into Cyprus, we hear that in our text, Antioch, there's the church, and there's Tarsus up at the top where Paul is. So north and east, if you're directionally challenged, it's going up and to the left. So let's talk about a couple of these places, because they're very important. Luke mentions them in our text. In our map, you see Phoenicia there. Again, it's the Mediterranean seacoast of Syria. It's about 100 miles long, about 15 miles inland, stretches into about 30 miles inland. Cyprus is an island to the west or to the left. Uh, incidentally, Cyprus was where Barnabas was from. And up until now, up until now, remember, the gospel had only been preached to Jews. But, but we read today that some men, which I love the fact that it doesn't name who they are. They're just some men. Some faithful believers. That's, that's, a, that's a sermon in itself. Sam talked about a long time ago, he listed a bunch of names and what they had done and how God had worked through them and got to, I think it was Billy Graham he got to, all the lineage of believers that no one knows about until they got to this man called Billy Graham. And we all have those people in our lives. We all have people in, in our story, people that no one else knows, that God has done amazing things through and they're doing amazing things through us now as well. Some men came to Antioch, and what did they do? They preached the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles, to the Hellenists, to the Gentiles in the city. And, and what do we know about the church in Antioch? This is really important for us to understand. The context into which this church was planted and was grown. Now, Antioch, as you see it, way up there, Antioch is a key church. And its ministry is going to become the point of focus. It's where Paul's missionary journeys are launched from. It's on a river called the Arontus River. It's located what is in now southern Turkey. It was the third largest city behind Alexandria and Rome. It was about a half a million people are some of the estimates. About 25,000 of them were Jews. About five miles from Antioch was the city of Daphne. And Daphne was known for the worship of gods like Artemis and Apollos and Astarte. 
And so the area was known for a great moral laxity. Astarte worship included cultic prostitutions. The place was known for its immorality. A philosopher of the day, Libanius, and a writer who lived in Antioch, he said that in around AD 30, he wrote that the city was the, the abode of the gods. Gods like Zeus and Apollos and Poseidon and Adonis and Tyche were worshipped there. It was full of religious activity, half a million people, full of religious activity and presence. So this, it's this cosmopolitan city full of gods where Juda, Judaism functioned as an exception to the rule, clinging to the one true God. And, and it's in this context that the church in Antioch emerged and reached out into the larger world with, with its mission. The fire of the Holy Spirit spread. Antioch was also a commercial hub. It was in a very fertile plain. The river Orontes uh, led to a port about 15 miles, 18 miles away from Antioch. So Antioch reflects this marriage of Oriental and Hellenistic life with Greeks and Syrians and Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Persians and Egyptian and Indians making up this population. You can just imagine it's not unlike some of our modern cities today. The church in Antioch with its practices of biblical doctrine, doctrine represented a distinctively countercultural way of life. You see how important it is to understand. When Sam and I went to the Sexual Integrity Leadership Conference, Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit last month, there was a keynote speaker. His name was Dr. Matthew Rieger. And he had written a book, of course, as they all do. Um, and his keynote speech was called, We've Been This Way Before. Historical Context for Sexual Ethics Today. And Dr. Rieger spent the better part of a half an hour, and it was heavy. And, and it, was, it, was, um, it was bad. He went through the first six or so emperors of Rome and their, what their sexual ethic was. And you may think you know what it was. I had no clue. And it just left you sitting there feeling dirty and disgusting. In fact, the conference had, quite often they would put numbers up because of the nature of, of this summit, and they would say, if you're triggered by anything, here's a number you can text, and there's a room we have reserved so you can go and you get help. It was really, really intense. But he needed to lay that foundation of about a half an hour to get to the church and to say, into this, into this culture, the church, the Christians, started. And made a difference. The Holy Spirit, and his whole point was, we've been there before. What we're seeing today is nothing new. So this should be a great encouragement to us because God is capable and is doing amazing work. And so the church in Antioch is having an influence and word gets back to Jerusalem. And they determine back in Jerusalem at that church that they need to send somebody to check things out. And so they send Barnabas. And what does Barnabas experience in verse 23? It says, when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Another way of saying that he saw the grace of God is when he came and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and exhorted them all. Now we're going to come back to this in a little bit, but I want us to remember that the grace of God, and we all know this, but the grace of God is intertwined with the gospel. And just as the gospel is not to terminate on us, neither is the grace of God meant to terminate on us. Again, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but, but Barnabas, for some reason, is then compelled to go up to Tarsus, north or up, and find Saul. Last we heard of Saul, he was heading up to, to, Antio or to, uh, to Tarsus and to bring him back down to Antioch where they both stayed for a year teaching the believers. And for the first time, the believers were called Christians, which is a very interesting fact, I think. And then our text ends with more movement. Apparently in those days, it's common practice for prophets to come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, one such prophet is Agabus, which is a fun name to say. Agabus is a great name. Agabus foretold of a famine that was coming, and his prophetic voice compelled the church to action, which I think is very important. Sometimes we get caught up in prophecy and we're mesmerized or we're in fear. 
And prophecy is meant to call us to action, and that's what happened in the church. They send relief down to Jerusalem by way of our guys, Barnabas and Saul. And that's where our text, that's where our text ends. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk just about a couple of things I think that are important to highlight, any of which could be a sermon unto themselves, but we have to focus on one thing because of time. And then we're going to come back to this foundational base color analogy that I talked about earlier uh, that is fundamental to believers of all time who make up the church. So here are a few things I just want to mention. In verse 20 and 21, it says they were preaching the Lord Jesus. What's the significance of that? Well, why is this important? Well, because preaching Jesus as Christ or Messiah would have been lost in a non-Jewish culture. Remember, there's about a half a million people, and there's only about 25,000 people that are Jews. They're preaching to Gentiles anyway, and preaching a Messiah to them would not have really meant a lot. But preaching Lord, preaching ruler... Lord was a commonly spoken was commonly spoken in that in that in that culture. Curious, curious. These mystery religions used this term in reference to a divine God that would give salvation to people. And so the church in Antioch were able to tell everyone about this Lord who is only Savior, and that the Savior had authority in their lives, authority that could actually, as we see, be experienced by the culture. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing, in verse 23, it mentions Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Why would they send Barnabas and not someone else? Well, we, we don't know. But I think it's telling that they sent someone whose name literally means son of encouragement. Do you think this church needed some encouragement? Yeah. They needed a lot of encouragement. They didn't need a nitpicker. They didn't need a critical person to tell them what they were doing wrong because we can all look into ministry, whether it's our church or some. We don't do it to our church. We look at other churches, other ministries, and we can nitpick. But we all do it. I do it. And we nitpick. And, here, and Sam is so good at this. He's such an encouragement. Because we're, we're going to mess up. We are. Because we're humans. And if you've ever been on the other end of Sam's encouragement, it is so life-giving. It's so good. It's so encouraging. And that's why they sent Barnabas, I think, is because he was encouraged, he had that natural encouragement. They needed that. Encouragement is empowering to the church. And I just think that's something we need to hear. We need encouragement. We live in a day of cynicism and opinions. We all have opinions. And encouragement is biblical and it's good. And as I said, it's life giving. And it's also one of the one another's that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, if you want to make a note of that. Verse 26, it says that Barnabas and Saul taught for a whole year. Why for a whole year? I have no idea. But I will say this, discipleship and spiritual formation takes time. And it takes intentionality. It doesn't just happen. You have to stick with it. You have to be diligent. And it's hard and it's sacrificial. And, and we, we talk about it all the time. Discipleship is very, very important, and we should all be involved in it. But it's not for the faint of heart. Just as being a Christian is not for the faint of heart, otherwise we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. Finally, verse 26, it says they were first called Christians. I love that. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians, that's an important distinctive there. The predominant name for believers in the first century, do you know what it is? Disciple. The word disciple is used multiple times in the New Testament, and you see Christian used, I think, three times. They were called disciples. They were called followers. They were called students of Jesus. Here, the word Christian was put on, on them because they so identified with this Jesus that they were called little Christs. And this leads us to ask the question, what is it about the church in Antioch that was so compelling that this pagan-worshipping, multi-ethnic, immoral culture identified them to Jesus Christ? What was it about them? Here's where I want to really focus most of our time. And it's in Acts chapter 11, 23 and 24. Let me reread it. Dr. Luke says, he says, when he came and saw, this is talking about Barnabas, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast 
purpose, for he was a good man, full of, Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Let's go back to the painting analogy for just a second. I mentioned Sean O'Coyle and his abstract approach and the layers. Well, if you don't know Sean, I picked another world-famous artist. You all know him. His name is Bob Ross. Remember Bob Ross? The Joy of Painting, PBS. Don't ask me why Bob Ross's name popped into my head, but I, I went on YouTube. You can watch all of the episodes of The Joy of Painting, all 30 seasons of The Joy of Painting on YouTube. And so I took a... I, I don't know what it was. I remembered that he talked about base foundations. And so I, I sampled about 12 of the beginning. Every one of his shows, except for one that I found, I only did about 12 or so, he starts out by talking about this liquid magic or white magic that he uses to cover every canvas. He, wet, he makes that canvas wet with this magic white. And the reason that he does this is he says it allows all of the colors, all the other colors, listen, to blend together better. I love that. I love this idea of these layers upon layers upon layers and this base coat being and forming this amazing palette to work Grace is like that in the church, isn't it? That's what grace is like. When grace permeates our church canvas and it's built up layer upon layer, church member upon church member, everything and everyone blends better. And what's built, you guys, is a culture of safety. And the world sees an accurate picture of what Jesus, of who Jesus is, as they see the grace that we live in and under. So what is grace then? Our text says that when Barnabas saw the grace of God, he was glad. You can also, again, as I said, when he saw what the grace of God had had done, he was glad. Well, what had the grace of God done? Well, we know know that grace is transformative, right? Grace is a great word. We name our kids grace, right? None of ours are named grace. But people name their kids grace. It's a great name. It's a, a very comforting word. When you say the word, you can't say grace and be mad. You really can't. Now, you can use it like a weapon. I've done that before. Very easy to use it as a weapon on people. And we ought not do that. But it's a great word. But what, what the grace is transformative, right? We're being transformed continually into the name of Jesus, into, into the image of Jesus. And it's called sanctification. So when what Barnabas saw in the church in Antioch was a picture of Jesus... And really more than a picture. He saw the very embodiment of Jesus Christ. He saw incarnational living from the people in Antioch, from the believers in Antioch, from the church at Antioch. They weren't only just declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. They were also living their faith out, identifying with Jesus so much that they declared Him as their Kyrios, their Lord. And remember, when the unnamed men came to Antioch, they were preaching this. They were preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was on them. And those who believed turned to the Lord. This man, this God Jesus, had authority and ruler in their lives. He changed them fundamentally from the inside out and the 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 world in Antioch was looking in on this and they were saying what in the world is going on they were living their lives under this authority I think the best way to say it probably not the best way but the one that came to my mind is Colossians 3 3 for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God let me say that again your life you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God Christ and us as a believer are both hidden in our Father God. You're like, okay, that's great, but you still haven't told us what grace is. Well, for our definition of grace, let's look at Jesus. Because there are several definitions of grace. There's a cultural definition of grace, isn't there? Culture's definition of grace says something like this. It's permission. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. As long as nobody gets hurt, it's okay. It's good. It's fine. Is that grace? That's not grace. Our culture has made an idol out of permission, and then they call it grace. And that's not what grace is. Now, before we get arrogant about this and point fingers at what the culture is doing when it comes to grace, there's also a religious definition of grace. And that religious definition says, I'm okay because I follow the rules, see the Pharisees, 
and you're not okay because you don't follow the rules, or at least the rules that I follow and I think are the right rules to follow. And under this definition of grace, um, under this definition of under this definition, grace is offered to anyone who looks, acts, and sounds like we do. Is this grace? This is not grace either. But there's a third definition of grace. It is the definition of grace, and it's found in the way that Jesus lived his life. And I want to read, you can follow along if you want, in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53 to 8, verse 11, we have this, this story about Jesus and his encounter with a woman caught in adultery. It's a familiar story. You guys all remember. It says this. It says, when they... They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. We have Jesus here in the middle of his ministry, in the middle of Jerusalem, the center of religion. It's where the temple was. It's the center of worship. And Jesus is approached by the religious, religious elites of the day. And remember, religion says that I'm okay because I follow the law, and you're not okay because you're not following the law. And they have this case study of this woman caught in adultery, and they want to trick Jesus. That's their point in this encounter. The teachers and the Pharisees were trying to use the Bible effectively, essentially, to punish someone for not obeying it. Now, how does this usually go? Not well. It's not the case here, but especially when you're dealing with people who don't believe your Scripture, people who outright reject your Scripture, and you try to use Scripture to actually train them and teach them and correct them, it doesn't work. There's a story, um, a Facebook post. You know, if, if you're on Facebook, when someone that is one of your friends likes a or co- likes or comments on a story somewhere, it could be anywhere, it can show up or will show up in your feed. And that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a, a story in the Washington Post, and it was something about Christianity. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was a comment by someone, one of my friends, in my in my friends um, thing. Um, and, and it said something, I tried to find it again, I couldn't find it to, to quote it accurately, but the essence of this comment was, some of us don't believe your scripture. And until you start living with compassion and love, shut up. It's essentially what it said. And I thought, that's it. We've lost the right to speak because of the way we act. And so when you take this and you use it as a weapon... You've lost the battle. You've completely lost the battle. And so the Pharisees are throwing the the law around. Now the Old Testament law had one purpose, and that was to bring people back into a loving covenant relationship with God. I know that that's more involved than that, but that's the purpose. In trying to trick Jesus, they say to Jesus, the law says we have to stone her. What do you say, Jesus, Messiah? And here's how they think they can, they can trick him. If he says stone her, then he loses the crowd. 
Because the crowd is there because they're drawn to this Jesus who has words of compassion, words of love, words of grace, words of forgiveness. He's ushering in the new kingdom. He's talking about new hearts. He's got this countenance about him that is drawing people that don't hang around Jesus, yet they're drawn to Jesus. And his message would be totally undercut if he said, stone her. If he says, don't stone her, and says what he's been saying, that I give you a new law, I fulfilled the law, well then this is going to give them authority to stone him. So they think they got Jesus. They think he's backed into the corner. Well, what does he do? Well, he stoops down and he's writing in the sand. They never say what it is. Commentators speculate. I'm not going to speculate today. It is fascinating, though, that he does this, and there are some fascinating commentaries on it. But he's writing in the dirt, and they press him on the question. So he stands up. He's like, go ahead and stone her. But let the first one cast the stone that is without sin. And in a culture that defines grace by saying, you're okay and I'm okay, so everything is okay, and a religion that can define grace as I'm okay because I follow rules and you don't, or you follow the law and I don't, Jesus shows, up, shows us a brand new paradigm here. And this is where we see how Jesus defines grace. Jesus looks at the woman and he looks at the Pharisees and he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, none of you are okay but I can make you okay. I can make you better than okay. I can make you new again. I can make you whole again. I can make you pure. He's highlighting that the Pharisees are seeking to punish and condemn the woman and put all of their attention on her and ignore their own stuff. That hits a little too close home for me to put all of the attention on someone else so people just ignore what I'm doing over here. Jesus exposes this flaw, and he says, if you're without sin, go ahead. And everybody knows immediately that they have no right to throw that stone because they're not okay, and they are worthy of judgment. And so one by one, they drop their rocks, and they leave. And they probably had a lot of guilt, and they probably had a lot of shame as they walked away. Here's the application. We all live under our own system of law. We all have our own system of law. We may call it morality. We may call it right and wrong. But all, each one of us has some kind of law. It could be the Bible. It could be Scripture. It may be the law of the government. If we, if we make it more personal, like for me, for instance, it, I'm not saying this is me, but it could be the law of Craig. Sometimes I probably do live by that law, and you probably do too. But the thing is, it's, it's, we all have something, some law that's written into our hearts that says this is how, this is how we ought to live, and this is how you ought to live. The thing is, we all break our own law. We all even, even we know we break God's law, but we even break our own law. We're, we're just a bunch of hypocrites. We're a hot mess. This is why we need Jesus. We can't wiggle our way out of this thing. We can't. It, scripture says it many, many times in many different ways. And here's what happens when we break the law. Whatever system it is that we follow, in our context, or whatever we want to call it, in our context, we call it sin, right? Outside of a biblical context, they may not call it sin. I don't know what they call it. Maybe it's you know, missing the mark or not measuring up or failure. I don't know, but we call it sin, and whatever you want to call it, it produces something. When we break our law, there's a, there's a feeling, there's an emotion that is, that, is, that is produced, and that emotion is called guilt. We feel bad about what we've done. Incidentally, no one has to teach us how to feel guilt, do they? They can, but if you could go back to the very first time you felt guilt, I bet you someone didn't tell you how to feel guilt. You just felt guilt. We feel bad about what we've done, and our brain is designed to not like that feeling. We don't like that feeling. Who, who loves to feel guilty? Nobody likes to feel guilty. And we work hard to rid ourselves of this, don't we? We can hide. We can ignore it. And we can justify it. 
Those are three of the things that we do. But hiding and ignoring and justifying, they're only attempts to deal with guilt. That's all they can do. They don't solve the problem that we're lawbreakers. They don't solve that problem. You see, the Pharisees are caught up. They're caught up in hiding. They're caught up in ignoring. They're caught up in justifying their own sin to fix their own guilt. And they put all their attention on some other lawbreaker, this, this woman who was caught in adultery. And if we go into what that whole thing means to be caught in adultery, it's a, it had to be a horrible scene. It didn't just happen. They had to wait for her. They had to have witnesses. And they had to be two people involved, both of which were supposed to come and be stoned. We only see one in our picture. So they were making a very convenient excuse for what they wanted to do with Jesus. It was a very ugly event. But they're caught up in this. They put all the attention on, on the woman. And when Jesus points out this by saying that if you're without sin to throw your stone, they all leave. And in what had to be an amazingly profound, profound moment, Jesus stands up, he looks the woman in the eyes, and he's like, woman, where are they? Where did they go? Has no one condemned you? And she says, nobody, Lord. They're all gone. And Jesus, in a tender moment of grace and truth, says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Grace is not permission to sin again. This day had to be the worst day of her life. Everything that she had to go through to get her to this moment had to be the worst day of her life. All of her junk was exposed. She didn't wake up that day wanting that to happen. Everything that she's been trying to hide, everything she's been trying to justify, everything she's been trying to ignore is brought into the light. And she has to face the truth. She has no choice but to face the truth. And when she did face the truth, this horrible day turned into be the day of her salvation. Facing the truth. Because by facing the truth, she found something that none of the Pharisees found. In facing the truth, in facing the very face of truth, Jesus, she finds grace, real grace, and the other thing that goes with it, truth. Grace and truth are entwined. A fellow by the name of Nick Stumbo, it's another great name, wrote a book called Safe, How to Create a Culture of Grace in the Church. And he says this, he says, Grace is when Jesus peers into your soul and casts his gaze on every hurt, on every secret, on every fear. It's when you feel the depth of his knowledge of you. Then we hear him whisper to you by name. Not the name calling we hear from the past. Not the name we hear ourselves call ourselves. We hear him call, I know I'm mixing my, my pronouns or nouns, I don't know what they are. Not the name calling we hear from the past. Hear him call you by your true name. He calls you loved. He calls you cherished. He calls you mine. This is grace. This is grace where you are fully known by the Lord of the universe and fully loved. This is grace. And as I said, grace is a great word. But grace is a rigorous path. It's a rigorous path. 1 John 1, 5-10 says this, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Grace is a rigorous path because grace is facing the truth before Jesus and others. This is why it's rigorous. 
We face it with Jesus and we face it with others in our context, in our context, in our church, and we find forgiveness. You may be saying, well, did you say others? Can't this just be between me and God? No, you can't. The problem with that thinking is if we only face the truth with God, we can still hide. We can still justify and we can still ignore our sin before others. And we can continue on in our sinful behavior and we don't find real grace in that. We don't find real grace in those moments. But if we face the truth before God and before others in a safe, grace-filled community, there is no hiding. And besides that, in James chapter 5, he says that confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another brings healing. I think we all want that. We all want healing. We all want to feel whole again. I believe that when Barnabas saw the grace of God at work in the church at Antioch, this is what, we, this is what he saw. I think it's the reason why he was so glad and he exhorted them to say, keep on doing that. Remain faithful to the Lord in doing that. That is your steadfast purpose because that purpose is having its effect on the church and on the culture. So much to the, to the extent they call them Christians. So we know they're having an effect. In that place where we're fully seen and fully known by God, and that grace is embodied in an incarnational way by brothers and sisters in Christ, so we can finally, we can finally um, say, God, hear God say, I don't condemn you, I forgive you, sin no more. Grace is rigorous. Grace is challenging. Grace is grueling. Grace is heavy. Grace is strenuous. It's not for the faint of heart. It's a great word. We should name our kids after, after grace. It's a wonderful word. But it's the, the actual living out of grace, it's tough. It's strenuous. Band, you can come up. You guys may be thinking, I don't believe this. I don't believe, and I'm not buying the idea, that a community of believers can actually live that out. That they can actually be that honest. Because that's not my reality. It's not my reality in any church I've been in, and it's not my reality in Red Tree. And I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm, I'm here to blow smoke. It's it's why grace is rigorous. But we've got to talk about it. We've got to preach on it. And we're filled by the Holy Spirit to live it out. But here's the thing. It happens, and it is happening, and it is happening in this church. I get to see it every week. I see it in the context of our men's sexual integrity group. These guys have been meeting for almost two years. And we have seen layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of grace that has just soaked in to the palate and has been built week by week, indeed day by day for these men to live and exist in a culture of grace. These men have told 100% of their story to these other guys. They haven't left anything back of what their unwanted sexual behavior is like and they are fully loved by these men and they are fully accepted by these men. And I get to witness that every week. And it is the highlight of my week. Every week. Is it easy? Heck no. There are some nights that are ugly. There are some nights that are frustrating for everybody. But it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is an example of rigorous grace. But you gotta want it. You gotta fight for it, guys. You gotta be willing to put yourself out doesn't just happen. This has created the safe environment for them not to be perfect in. Don't you want that? Isn't that life-giving? Doesn't that make you breathe a little deeper? That you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to perform. You don't have to hide. You don't have to justify. And you don't have to ignore your own sin. And while these men still struggle, because they do, 
We all struggle with sin. Whatever besetting sin we have, we all struggle with it in our lives. They breathe in the fresh air of God's grace and they live another day under that grace, enabled, emboldened, and empowered to live this life on a rigorous path of grace. Father, thank you for grace and thank you for the ability to live it out. And may our hearts be emboldened tonight to walk out of these, even before we walk out of these doors. As we chat with one another, as we leave, God, we're going to say pleasantries. And that's that's totally fine. But God, if your Spirit's working in us to, to begin this rigorous path, then so be it. Help us to be that church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Guys, as we reflect, here's what I want to do. The band's going to, just going to play quietly a little bit. I'm going to repeat this definition of grace that I, I read from Nick Stumbo that I kind of fumbled through a little bit. I just want you to close your eyes and listen to this. And just consider that, that the Jesus, the Lord of the universe, knows you. Jesus looks into your soul. You all know who you are, and you all know what stuff you're dealing with, and you all know what stuff you have done, or maybe are about to do. And Jesus peers into your soul. He casts his gaze on every hurt, on every secret, on every fear, and it's when you feel the depth of his knowledge of you. That's where I want you to be, feeling the depth of his knowledge of who you are. Hear his whisper. Hear Jesus' whisper, not the name-calling that people call you or you call yourself. Hear Jesus call you by your true name. He says you are loved. He says you are cherished. He says you are mine. Church, are you willing to let him into that place? That's the question. It's not easy. He wants that. Do you want that?